And again, I just want to say how honored we are to to have you guys here with us today. You know, for the past month, we've been talking about identity and who we are and uh, whose we are. You know, and and we've mentioned a lot of things. And and today, as we kind of wrap up, I want us to uh, focus on this fact that our identity is not what we do. Our identity is not what de- is not defined by our occupation or our job, so to speak. Because I know a lot of us do a lot of different things. We have a lot of different jobs. Some jobs we're proud of, some we're not. And I know it's, it's easy to take on this idea that this is who I am because this is what I'm doing. Now, if you are fortunate enough to do something that you are feel that, that you feel called to do and that you love to do, praise God. But even in that, that's not your identity. Your identity is in Christ and Christ alone. Amen. And so today, again, as we wrap up this series, so to speak, on identity, just keep that fact in mind or keep that thought in mind that. Regardless of what I do for a living, that is not my identity. And there are many, many instances in the Bible where we see people doing certain things and and then God steps in and he changed their course. Now, many of you guys know, and some may not, that I am a part of an organization called Fellowship of Christian Athletes. That is my job. And and that is a job that I truly believe God has called me to do. Side note, if you have any questions about FCA, I'll be gladly to talk to you after service. But in FCA, we do a thing called three-dimensional coaching. It is a series that we use to help train coaches on how to, um, and I would use the term better, uh, use their time and their occupation as a coach to disciple, you know, their staff and their athletes. And in three-dimensional coaching, it teaches three different parts, like your, your foundation, your physical, and then your, the second uh, dimension, you know, your mental, and then the third dimension is like the heart. And so in that three-dimensional coaching, there's a segment that talks about the measurements of time. And how there are two different categories of time, so to speak, one being chronos, meaning that it is minute by minute. It is continuous and which is where we derive the word chronological. And then the second type is called kairos time. Now, kairos time is time that's measured not minute by minute, but by moment by moment. And if we look at that Kairos time and in those Kairos moments, there are three things that could happen in those moments. One being you are able to rethink. The next, refocus. And the the third is redirect. So in Kronos time, there's a start and it's continuous. There's no change, no change in direction. But in Cairo's time, 
there's an opportunity for change. There's an opportunity to change in that moment, if that makes sense. And if you look at the story of Saul on his way to Damascus, had a Kairos moment. God stopped him dead in his tracks. God refocused and redirected his life and changed his name to Paul. But the example or the illustration I want to use today comes from Luke 19. That better be Jesus. No, I'm just sorry. <laughs> comes from Luke 19. And it's a story about a, 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 a man named Zacchaeus. Y'all remember the song as a kid, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. Am I the only one? Goodness, what were y'all doing at Bible study? I'm just kidding. But in, in this story, we want to talk about Zacchaeus's Kairos moment and how that pertains to us. Amen. God, we again ask you to come and be in this place with us. God, be here with us. God, move me out of the way, Father. God, I pray you use me right now. God, empty me and fill me with yourself, God, that I may be used as a vessel. God, my heart's desire, my heart's cry, God, is to be used by you, Father. I want them to hear you, God, and and not me. So, Father, we pray that regardless of what our life was like before this moment right now, God, it pales in comparison to what our life could be the moment we decide to give it all to you, Father. God, may today be a Kairos moment for someone, a chance for us to rethink and reform and redirect our lives. God, we love you and ask that you be in this place with us this moment, this day, in Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 19, verse 1 says this, he, meaning Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now we see right off the bat that Zacchaeus had two things going against him. One, he was not only a tax collector, but he was a chief tax collector. And to the people at that time, he was one of the worst people that could live. He was the sinner of, uh, above sinners. He was like an awful person because he was a tax collector. Now, some of you may feel that way about the IRS, but we'll talk about that another day. But Zacchaeus had these two things against him. It says he was a, a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now, if you go back into the book of Matthew, Jesus says to us that it is impossible almost for a rich man in the heaven. He said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter heaven. Now, does that mean it's wrong to be rich? No. Because in the episode or in the story of the rich young ruler, when he comes and you'll see how he differs from Zacchaeus later on. But when he comes and asks Jesus, hey, what do I do or what must I do to have or inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, get rid of everything you have. And what was his response? He walks away. Why? Because Jesus knew his heart. 
His heart was tied to what he possessed. His heart was tied to who he was and what he had. But here we see again that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Next verse. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So again, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he wanting to see the Lord. He climbed up a sycamore tree. And I have about four points I want to share with you today. But my first point I want to pose to you in the form of this question. Is there or what is it in your life that's keeping you from seeing Jesus? What's that one thing or what are those things that keeps you from seeing Jesus? There are some sins or or some people or some some habits or whatever that we are so close to that we want to don't want to let go of because we feel that they define who we are. But it's keeping us from seeing Jesus. As I shared in the first service, when you think about uh, the story of the account in the garden where God told Adam and Eve, do not eat from the tree which is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat of it, you should surely die. And I know many of you, just like I was, were thinking of physical death, but if we look at scripture and we understand that death in the Bible is separation from God. And the Bible teaches us that sin separates. So if there's sin in our lives keeping us from seeing God, we are really living in death. Again, because death is separation from that which gives life. And that's God. So I ask that question again. What is it or who is it in your life that's stopping you from seeing Jesus? What's keeping you from giving him your all? Zacchaeus was, as the word says, a wee little man. I'm sorry, when I hear that word, wee little man, I think about a little leprechaun or something like that, like somebody like not as tall as this. And please don't get offended. I'm not trying to offend anyone. I'm just trying to illustrate a point for you. Zacchaeus is like, look, I want to see this man named Jesus, but what's in front of me is keeping me from doing that. So let's go to the next verse. Verse four, it says, so he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. My first point was this question. What is it keeping you from seeing Jesus in the second part of that, are you willing to do what it takes to get your, yourself in a position to where you can see Jesus? Are you willing to get rid of those things that's stopping you from being the person God has called you to be? Are you willing to let it go? Are you willing to say, God, I've had enough? I have a desire to meet you. I have a desire to to see you. Are you willing to let it go? Verse five. And when Jesus came to the place. 
he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, and I want you to notice something. Zacchaeus heard Jesus was coming by. Zacchaeus ran to meet Jesus. Zacchaeus ran into an obstacle. He was too short to see over the crowd. And so Zacchaeus ran up ahead where Jesus was supposed to pass by and he climbs up in a tree. And when Jesus comes by, not only did he see a figure of a man in a tree, but he called that man by name. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. That's amazing. Here we have the tax collector that nobody liked. The rich man that nobody liked because of his profession, because of what he did for a living. Had a desire to see and meet Jesus. And so he runs and climbs up in a tree and Jesus calls him by his name. He didn't say, hey, tax collector, come here. He didn't say, hey, rich man, come here. He called him by his name, Zacchaeus. Hurry down, because I'm going home with you. But the thing I didn't tell you about Zacchaeus was, yes, he's a tax collector. Yes, he was a rich man. Yes, he was not liked by the people, but Zacchaeus' name means pure and innocent. Zacchaeus, his his occupation did not define who he was. And Jesus tells him, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Verse six, sir, he hurried and came down and received him Joyful. Look at his response when when Jesus called him. He didn't say, well, God, uh, you know, I got a few things I want to do first. You know, let let me run home and clean up before you come. You know, we had a party last night and I want to see, I don't want you to see the mess we made. You know, let, let me clean up a little bit before you come to my house. Now, I need to get some things in order. I want to do some things first before you come. Sound familiar? Jesus, I hear you calling me, but there's some things I want to do before I I give my life to you. You know, I remember as a kid thinking that, you know, well, I can have my fun now. And then later on when I'm old, I can give my life to Christ. I mean, you know, death doesn't care how old you are. Sin doesn't care how old you are. The enemy doesn't care how old you are. Better yet, if he can snuff you out when you're young, better for him. But that, doesn't that sound like us a lot of times? We want to get some things in order before we have company. 
Yeah. My philosophy, if we keep it clean, we won't have to clean when somebody wants to come over. Same with our lives. If we are living for Jesus, striving to live for Jesus, when he wants to come over, we won't have to run and clean up. Because, but here's the thing. He's the one who makes us clean. And Zacchaeus realized that because look at his response. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. This is Zacchaeus' Kairos moment. This is that opportunity for him to rethink, reform, and redirect. He received him joyfully. But watch this, verse 7. And when they, keep that word in your mind, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be with the guest of the of a man who is a sinner. Doesn't that sound just like church folk? Don't just like church folk. I cannot believe the way God has blessed that person. Does he not know how bad they are? I cannot believe you are spending time trying to share the gospel with this person because, man, man, we are so quick to point out the sins of others and we fail to look in the mirror. They begin to grumble because Jesus chose to go and be and dine or, or whatever with Zacchaeus, who was the tax collector, who was in their eyes a sinner, but failed to realize what Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short. But in verse 24, it lets us know that all of us could be justified. So they grumbled and complained. You know, there's a, a parable that Jesus told of the, the lost sheep. And the, the, the shepherd had 100 sheep, one got lost. And so he left the 99 to go find the one. And when he found the one, he threw the one over his shoulders and he brought him back to the fold and he shared with his friends and neighbors so they could celebrate the fact that he found his one lost sheep. And one of the most important parts about that story is the reaction of the friends and the neighbors when the shepherd comes home with his lost sheep. They rejoiced because the sheep had been found. The same way we should rejoice when a lost soul comes to Christ. We shouldn't look at their sins or look at what they do. Think about the worst person in the world. If they receive Christ, they become a brother or a sister. And we have to see past what they've done. We have to see past their sins. 
prime example, Barabbas. The person, the word said, deserved the cross. But if you look at it, he was the very first example of the reason why Jesus came. To take the place of the sinner. Now, whether Barabbas became saved or not, the Bible doesn't tell us that. But we shouldn't grumble and complain when God chooses to save someone. Or when someone chooses to be saved. Or when someone chooses Christ. We shouldn't complain. My next point is this. Just like Jesus met Zacchaeus where he was, if we're followers of Jesus, if we're disciples of Jesus, we're supposed to meet the people God has put in our path to reach where they are. It goes beyond us inviting them to church. Because sometimes the places God sends you will be uncomfortable. You will not like where God sends you sometimes. But he's doing it for a reason. He's doing it for a purpose. Because here's the thing. Just like he loves you, he loves them. He died for them as well. Jesus shed his blood for them as well. And, and, and a lot of the times, the people that God sent us to witness to are the people that hurt us the most. Wait a minute, you want me to do what? Did you not see what they did to me? They don't deserve to be saved, just like Jonah. God, you want me to go where? Preach to who? Those people don't deserve to be saved. Or is this scenario, someone hurts you and you want to pay them back, but God got to them first. God got to them first and he changed their lives. And they came to apologize to you. And now you mad because you couldn't get them back. But shouldn't that be the ultimate goal of anybody who hurt us, that God would get a hold of their hearts? We shouldn't grumble and complain. Next verse. As Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it. For full. Now remember, he was a rich man. And remember the comparison of the rich ruler that asked Christ, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Christ tells him, Give away what you have. Zacchaeus volunteered it. He said, Half of what I have, I'm going to give away. And if I've defrauded anyone, remember, he's a tax collector. He was known for skimming off the top or, or charging people double or, or giving them a wrong amount so he can pad his pockets. He says, 
if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus did not let what he had or had stand between him and his salvation. Zacchaeus said, yeah, I'm rich. I got a lot. But I'm willing to give it all up to be with Jesus. And my question is, can you humble yourself enough to say the same thing? Maybe you don't have much. But are you willing to give it up? This wasn't in my notes, but I'm feeling led to say this. If you remember the story about the little guy with the two fish and the five loaves. The disciple came, said, hey, give me your lunch. We need it. He could have very well been selfish and say, look, this is all I have. You want me to give up what? I'm hungry. I like to eat. But he gave up what he had. And look what Jesus did with it. And my question again is, are you willing to give up what you have for him? Because he gave it all for you. He gave it all for you. Verse 9. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Verse 10. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Ben, you can make your way back. Again, your occupation is, is, is not your identity. What Zacchaeus had, he was willing to give He was willing and ready to repair the people or the relationships he's messed up in the past. He was willing to repay Zacchaeus showed humility when he was confronted with the choice do I want him? Am I going to let what I can't, I, I can't do? I can't see him. I'm too short that people in front of me, oh, well, I guess I'll just go back home. He said, no. I'm going to put myself in a position to where I can see him and more importantly, where he can see me. Because not only did Jesus look and see that figure of a man and call him by his name, Jesus saw the desire of his heart. He saw Zacchaeus' desire to see him. He saw his desire to meet him. And he met him right where he was. Are you willing to do the same? Are you willing to do the same as we prepare for the Lord's Supper? If you've been asked to do and to help out, we ask you to come down now. Are you willing to give up what you have for God to use it?
the word says that when Jesus met his disciples in the upper room, he told them that this is the last time I'm going to eat and drink with you until I come into my kingdom. And the word says he took the bread and he lifted it toward heaven and he said his blessing and he broke it in two and told his disciples, this is my body broken for you. I mean, when I hear that statement, I think about the lashes he took, the beatings, the the torture, the the spitting and the spearing and and all the, the pain that he suffered for us. Guys, he was broken. He was broken for us. And he took the cup and he lifted it towards heaven and he blessed it as well and he told them this is my blood whom my blood which I shed for you. And guys, understand this. When we accept Christ and we choose to live for him, the Bible teaches we are now covered by the blood of Jesus. And so if you don't understand sacrifice, let me break this down to you. Because I don't want to assume that everybody understands. See, back in the old times, when the priests went into the temple, there was a sacrifice made for the sins of the people and the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. And they had to do that once a year. The priest would go into the place, the Holy of Holies, and make this sacrifice and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Hear that word, mercy seat. But what Jesus was telling his disciples, I am about to make the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice for now and forevermore. And when he hung on that cross and says it is finished, the Bible teaches that the veil was torn from top to bottom, gave all of us free access to the father. And now we have to make the same choice Zacchaeus made. I want Jesus. I don't care what's in my way. I'm going to do what it takes to see Jesus. I'm going to do everything in my power to see him. Because I want him to see me as his son, covered in the blood. God, thank you for your grace. God, as your people prepare their hearts to receive communion today. God, I thank you. I thank you, Father, for what you've done. God, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for what we failed you. Pray you come into our hearts, God. This is our Kairos moment right now, God. You're calling someone by name, God, telling them to come down and to meet with you because you want to meet with them, God. And I pray they let go of anything and all things that's hindering them from giving you everything. 
God, we thank you for what you did for us on the cross. We pray these and others in Jesus' name.